Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, timeless investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe to follow along. Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compound, the number one value investing podcast in the world, soon to be the number one YouTube value investing channel in the world as well, sitting next to Jeff Gann. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. I hope it's going great for everybody else. I'm kind of pumped up for this podcast that we are going to be recording. Um, if this is the first time that you are tuning in with us and you're listening on the podcast side of things, this is a video that you are probably going to want to watch on YouTube. We have uploaded Jeff's um, PDF I guess marked up 10K and we're going to be going through it so people could see what we look for and things that stand out. And I think it's going to help out a lot of people. Uh, so super excited to share this uh, with everybody. Uh, like I said, if this is the first time that you're tuning in with us, be sure to check out all of our content. The best place to get all of our content, I would say, is my Twitter at Focused Compound, uh, not Focused Compounding, Focused Compound. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, thumbs video up. We have a ton of ideas. Like I said, we are going to be the number one value investing channel on YouTube in the near future, so be sure to follow along. If you like research, follow us and follow along our work at focuscompounding.com and sign up. Use the podcast promo code, which is podcast. It's, it's, it's podcast. We're keeping it simple. The word podcast, and I'll take ten dollars off of the subscription subscription price as long as you do stay a member. I'm just so excited. I'm just getting all tripped up on my words and stuff like that. So let's jump into it. So Transcat, trust in every measure. Ticker T R N S. This is a company. What do they do? Really quick. Uh, Transcat does uh, distribution of um, handheld test uh, equipment measurement stuff for life sciences and aerospace and defense and things like that. But it's expanded from that into actually not just calibrating the stuff that they sell, but having these calibration centers for calibrating all this stuff. And that's the big part of the business now. More than half their earnings now are going to probably come from... Is it Overlook Star? Um it was. It's become less overlooked, unfortunately. Whoa. And I want to apologize in advance for Jeff's uh, caveman handwriting. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. It's good. So um, you could, I mean, I could read this. So this is good. So this is on the okay. first page, right? Let's see. So Do this is wanna... actually an annual report. There we go. We're so this is. Zooming out a little bit. Okay. Uh, so this like is that. an annual report. So um, it actually is going to have this stuff up front, and then it's going to go into the 10K. Normally, we'd just be reading a 10K for a company, but uh, Transcat actually puts the 10K in their annual report. So mm -hmm. we're just reading the annual okay, report. Okay. So. Um, um, you obviously underline what they do, leading provider of accredited calibration, repair, inspection, and laboratory instrument services. Why did you circle life sciences? Air? Maybe, why don't we do this first? Okay. Explain what you usually do, because you do have certain things that you, like, box as opposed to underline. You have certain words that you'll put, like, hmm, HM, right. or, like, this an exclamation right point. So maybe tell me first why you do that and okay, what that so means. Uh, here we have, hmm, believed to be the best in the industry. I don't know what that means. Where's that? Uh, Where's that? You got uh, oh, yeah, right here. Paragraph. So yeah. whenever a company is like very promotional or something like that, you put, hmm. Yeah, and it's something says, you don't believe and I, to be true. I don't d disagree that they might be right here, but they don't give any um, 
they don't give any like why market report of what it is, anything like that. I, I actually, in this case, from what I know about it, believe that they're that that's the case that it's believed to be the best in the industry. I, I think that's probably true, but they don't have any source for it and stuff. And so it's always interesting when uh, they have that. So I, I write that down and you'll see that typically. I feel like every company you look at, they say, oh, we're the global number one leader and blah, blah. Every single company, you're like, I've read like four of your peers and they all say the same thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but sometimes, it, as we'll see, sometimes they'll give specific things about um, you know, what they are actually a leader in and stuff like that. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So you have the customer industries. So you wrote down so you can remember, which is what you circled right. life science, aerospace, defense, pharmaceutical, medical device, and biotech. Got it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I highlighted basically things about what they do for the most part. Also just like how many centers they have and all that stuff. Very basic things like that. Um, then you also just have a circling of the slope of the, um, uh, the revenue, the net income, the adjusted EBITDA, just to see what differences there are there. And this starts to paint the picture, right? Mm -hmm. You start to do these calculations in your head, right? Okay, so what is this? What's their net margin? What's their adjusted EBITDA margin? You know, yeah. what's that growth and like what's that cater look like? The thing that I paid a lot of attention to for whatever reason here is that distribution. So if you look on the left hand side of the page, they break down revenue by distribution and service. Mm -hmm. uh, service is the top part there. You see in the darker part is the distribution. And so I, I talked about distribution declined from uh, fiscal year 2015 to 2016. And I talk about how much it declined, what percentage decline that is. I did those calculations. I have a calculator next to me when I'm doing this. So um, th that stood out to me. Yes, and, a real calculator. Uh, and this is done on paper, real paper too. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, that, that just stood out to me in a meaningful way. So you can see that like the service stuff didn't, so I kind of focused on the one year where there was a major decline in distribution. And I wondered why that was and you know things like whether that means it's more, uh, you can put off the purchase and things like that. And as we'll see maybe later in the uh, report, I did some calculations on how big an order is for them and stuff. And that made sense when I figured that out. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so basically I just said there how much uh, revenue declined from distribution, how much EBITDA declined. So I said, like, in the last five years, there was one year where it declined 12% revenue and 24% EBITDA, right? So it's just mm -hmm. a calculation of sort of the sensitivity of what a bad year looks like for them. Yeah, I'm trying to uh, get, like, cute here, and this is not working out. Let's okay. see. Pen. There we go. Oh, yeah. So there you go. So you were doing that, right? Okay. <laughs> well, that was worthless. All right, next page. Um, okay. All right. So this is the shareholder letter. Yep. All right. And things you underline, right? Another record year, service, mm -hmm. distribution, uh, record levels of revenue. That they think that their service and distribution segments work together. I did circle that because that's kind of interesting. Uh, organic growth. Organic growth is always a big deal about that. And I also circled the one line that really stood out to me of this, and I'm sure it would stand out to anyone, is that they said they've had 40 consecutive quarters of year-over-year -year quarterly service growth. That's uh -huh. 10 straight years. They even put that in italics and stuff themselves. So obviously that one stood out. But I'm always interested in things that are like the long-term record versus just what it is this year. And that's why why is that? It's because we're so focused on the predictability of every. Right. I mean, that's the number one measure that Jeff and I definitely focus on. Right. And what you'll see with this company, which I did write up for Focus Compounding, that's why I did this markup of the 10K is in anticipation of writing up a stock, um, is that I think that the stock's getting more attention and will get more attention, maybe even will be seen as a compounder or something, because it's going to become not only a faster growing company over time, it already has become faster growing, but also more predictable because the service business is becoming the majority of it. The service business is growing, but also it's super predictable compared to the distribution business. Mm -hmm. So um, Okay, so we got net income growth of 21% mm -hmm. to a record 7.1 million or 95 cents per diluted share. Why'd you circle that? Just to kind of get an idea of it or what? 
Yeah, those are just you know sort of the headline numbers of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just when I'm thinking about the stock, I now know what the earnings were and just have that in my mind. Yeah, you know? and and then look, they say acquisition strategy strengthens value proposition, and then they go to say acquisitions are an important part of our strategy. Obviously, that's incredibly useful information to know about a company uh, to think about its future. Yeah, right, which is why you circled it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's some stuff here that was the calibrated by Transcat stuff that's pretty basic things but the thing that i did circle that i don't circle but underline i thought was really important was they say our mission to ensure compliance control and risk reduction in highly regulated industries and actually i keep a a yellow pad next to me where i write down certain things that i actually want to keep in mind apart from just in the 10k and that's one of the things that i wrote down is that they literally put their mission that way um basically that they're focused on calibration for industries that have uh regulation so faa and fda um uh, especially FDA, I think, but uh, regulated industries. So there might be rules about calibration and stuff like that. It just uh, it seems more like a possibility for a long-term recurring revenue from that. Those kinds of industries are more um, unlikely to put off things. And I think this is important too, right? We expect to drive double-digit service growth into the future. It is right. So you think about service revenue. I mean, right. It is although revenue. as we go into talking about there, the one issue is. Um, uh, that it, they don't say there whether it's organic or not not organic, right? So part of it will be inorganic. So I care more about like the organic part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That circling is just so I remember the name of the president, CEO, and remember that he has both titles. Um, yeah, so you can see here I did a basic calculation of the thing that really stood out to me. I think everything, <laughs> it's funny, that's the only thing that I marked up on this, right? So it has five-year performance highlights. And um, the only thing I focused on was the share count going up. So I wrote a note that I think the drag is causing share dilution of 1% to 2% a year. You can also see I did calculations showing that in one year, their share count went up by 1%. Then it was basically flat. Then it was up 2%. And then it was up 3%. Mm -hmm. And so I focused in on that. It's the kind of thing that the company won't, like, tell you exactly of how much they dilute. That's very important. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So that's the way I calculated, by the way. I've said this before, I think. I don't count um, stock options and things like that as an expense of the company, like a cash expense. It's not a cash expense. But I do just subtract it from the total return expectation I have. So what I do is I figure out how much I think a company will dilute while I own the stock. And if I think that they'll issue one to two percent per year i take the high end of that number so two percent on that range and i just assume that if i that i'm going to let's say i need a 10 percent return in the stock well actually i need the underlying business to do 12 percent now Mm -hmm. because i'm going to have two percent drag caused by this um, compensation yep adjusted ebitda right so you just kind of took some more uh calculations on that Mm -hmm. it going up i'm guessing is what these arrows mean yeah. From the previous year. Yeah. And then it, it was, um, it, and then it just, it has information there about the, uh, the, the, the distribution one. I, I just mentioned that the distribution operating income is very, um, I, I think I call it spotty or something like that in the note, but that it's very, um, uneven as compared to the service one. So if you look, you can see, uh, if you look, you can see where the, um, distribution operating income is very variable, mm-hmm. right. When compared to the service one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Get into the 10K. Mm-hmm. All right. So now people could see what we actually do. Let me see if I can. Yep. We've talked about the cover page before and what I always mark. So the things that I always mark on the cover page are um, the state that it's in, uh, the, I get that right. where it's headquartered, where it's incorporated, the trading symbol, 
um, where it's listed, if it has more than one class of stock, and also the share count, which is you can't see right now, but it's at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Uh, only one that I would stand out as interesting here, if you scroll up a little bit, is you'll notice I did make note. Oh, what's going on? Here? I did make note of um, one odd thing about this company, which I think you can pick up right away. Yeah, right? The, the Ohio, and then it's right. Uh, so why is the New company York. incorporated in Ohio if it's headquartered in New York? So just so people know, there's two states in the U.S. where you would incorporate even though you don't do business. They're Delaware and Nevada. Other than that, companies don't normally incorporate in a state in which that's not their headquarters. They don't have a like historical reason for being there. So normally, if you have an Ohio incorporation, it's because your company's actually from Ohio. You do business in Ohio. I've you know, seen companies with Ohio corporations, but they're actually from Ohio. Here we have one that's in Rochester, New York, yet it d- isn't incorporated in New York. It's incorporated in Ohio. That's it. Yeah. Just something just to why note. Is why that? is that? Yeah. yeah. And also Ohio has different laws. I think you see that more too in, in these micro caps or smaller companies. And as we read about the history of the company, it might make more sense. This company was founded in like the sixties and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. they probably never changed the incorporation from wherever they chose to incorporate originally. And it would have maybe made less sense at the time to incorporate in Delaware. Mm-hmm. But if it was around today, making the decision, I assume they'd incorporate in Delaware. Mm-hmm. Okay, so things you're looking for in like the business overview, right? Type of customers that they have, what they exactly do, mm-hmm. special things that they say, you know. And there's other things we've talked about before, right? If they say that we, um, uh, like, if they talk about like price or something. Like they, they compete on price or something that could mean it's more of like a commodity type business. Just little subtle cues like that, right. I think, the, is stuff that you're looking for in this yeah. overview the to two, learn about the business. The two things I circled were highly regulated industries and risk of failure is very costly. So those were the two things. What's that, that check mark mean? Was important. Oh, I just, that's a check mark meaning that I figured that that's true. So it just it, they are explicitly saying what I figured is true, which is that these companies are worried about calibration of their instruments and stuff because if you're doing work on something like this, you don't want to even oil and gas, for instance, they mentioned, which is um, not as regulated as the other industries. Still, if you have test equipment that doesn't work right for measuring things, um, you could have to shut something down that would really cause you a lot of lost revenue mm-hmm. for the day. Or whatever. highly regulated industries too. That's good stuff to know. Mm-hmm. Uh, number of customers, customer concentration, you know, you're trying to yeah, get a feel for that. Yeah, and they give a nice note there. I didn't circle it or anything, but they also mentioned that the customer overlap is 25 to 30%. This is a very good 10K. Um, this yeah, is an it's extremely very informative 10K. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Anything else? Really just more about the business and what they do and stuff. Yeah, it's just... I like this part, right? Right. Yeah. We also serve our customers on-site at their facilities for daily, weekly, or longer-term periods. Mm-hmm. Good information to know. Mobile calibration labs and everything. This is just literally like what the business is. I'm trying to understand what it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, things like that, yeah. Okay. More on that. Yeah, so then you have the distribution one. Incorporation, so you could see why, right? Why is it incorporated in Ohio? Yeah, which is in 1964. I still don't know from the write-up that I've done why they incorporated in Ohio in 1964. But to be fair, like I said, I don't know in 1964 if Delaware was a popular place to incorporate mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I don't know the history of like whether Ohio was a pretty popular place to incorporate in the 60s. Yep. And then just of course looking, you know, our strategy. I mean, what is it? What are they trying to communicate? Right within our service segment, our strategy is to drive double-digit revenue growth for mm-hmm. both through organic expansion and acquisitions. Yeah, it's just painting the, the picture. I always say, I think Jeff has a very good ability to read financial statements, which can be very bland, and then really get the story behind it. Okay. You know, 
Yeah, this is a good 10K, so it has a lot of that sort of information. Mm-hmm. And tons of things about management's guidance for things. So, um, oh, there's the first time you get exclamation points right for me. Yeah, so it talks about the majority of our acquisition opportunities. That's interesting that they believe they're in the 500000 to $10 million range. It's obviously pretty low for a company with the revenue they're doing already. Even just one segment of them, I think, will do all close to $100 million in the next year or so. We'll see. So they're talking about very small acquisitions, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as you see there, though, I have exclamation points. Look at it right points. there. So exclamation points appear sometimes with the word yikes and things like that and things that i marking as a warning. So this was this sentence really stood out to me. So it says, um, this differentiation and diversification strategy has been deliberately instituted in recent years as a means to mitigate the effect of price-driven competition. And they go on and stuff with that. But the price-driven competition is the reason why they're diversifying away from distribution and, and things like that. Um, uh, did concern me. And then they'll actually say the word Amazon later. I don't think they do here, but later they'll actually say Amazon. And that the companies like that compete mainly on price. So that did stand out to me because obviously that's a concern anytime I see price driven competition. So they're basically saying price competition is increasing in their distribution business. Mm -hmm. Okay. More on the business. So they're talking about uh, the service, right? Yeah, so, so higher gross one, margins, reoccurring a, revenue streams, all stuff that yeah. I would like to see. So you see a star there. So there's a star on each side of the paragraph to point out to me that this is a very important thing that I read. And the thing that I'm marking that I thought was very important that I read actually is just this underlying part that says, more compelling and scalable than our legacy distribution segment, we expect our service segment to be the primary source of revenue and earnings growth in future fiscal years. Mm-hmm. So basically it's growing and they expect it to be, they're, they're outright saying they expect this to be a better business. And especially the things where they talk about it being scalable. Reoccurring revenue, high gross margin, stuff like that. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and I'll get into that in, and in the write-up I got into that a lot is whether their margins can expand. They've had a lot of growth in service revenue, but in the last five years or so, they haven't had a lot of um, margin expansion. And then the last year, they had huge margin expansion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could see the final write-up on Focus Compounding. Yeah, if you remember. Use the podcast promo code, or don't. But yes, <laughs> we'll get paid more, if you don't. <laughs> but you'll pay more money. So use the podcast promo code. Distribution all over the place, right? Which yep. is probably why they're looking to grow the service business. Yeah. For the people listening on the podcast, when he says distribution all over the place, literally my note is distribution all over the place is the revenue is going, um, is not stable at all. Whereas I've marked up the revenue as being pretty stable. Like what did I say? Nine to 20% annual growth in the service part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, I always like to say it because it's so true. We focus very much on predictability, which is why you're pointing out that revenue from the distribution business is all over the place. Yeah. That's not something we would like to see. No. Okay, calibration, talking more about that. Mm-hmm. And this is all stuff that you'd expect. Um, we perform 525,000 calibrations annually. Yeah, and then in my yellow uh, pages, which you don't see, I actually did math on that, which is pretty easy math because there's 52 weeks in a year, and 525,000 divides very nicely into 52 weeks, so it's not hard to figure out <laughs> things like weeks, days, things like that. Mm-hmm. But for numbers that are harder to divide in your head, it, it would be um, more interesting. So obviously you can see that they do many, many thousands of calibrations mm-hmm. uh, a week. They do more than 1,000 calibrations a day. That kind of thing's very... Uh, interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I do always do that calculation of that sort of thing. Oh, I also highlighted this thing, which is just that they pass um, 13 to 15% of their service segment revenue on. They basically outsource it. They can't actually perform the calibration themselves. Mm-hmm. It's too technical for them. It's too uh, specific, too niche. But they want to keep the customer. 
Okay, compliance services mm-hmm. to generate reoccurring revenue, just more words, buzzwords like that, right? To kind of get a, a feel for the business. Yeah. And then you'll just see a lot of things. Um, I think after this part, so this is, no, there's nothing interesting here, but after this part, I think you're going to see a lot of sort of things repeating. Let's see. Uh, this one is interesting service value proposition. So this is not something that a lot of companies include in their 10K. So they talk about like specifically what they do for the customer and why that would be valuable to the customer. I don't know if this is all that exciting to investors generally, but it's interesting to me to learn about like exactly how they do it. So is it, is it stuff that they calibrate and then ship to them? That's part of it. Um, is it stuff that gets sent to them and then they calibrate and then send it back? Is it stuff that they do at the customer's facility? Is it stuff they do with one of their mobile mm-hmm. calibration units? Why do they do that? Somewhere else they mentioned the mobile calibration units are because when the customer doesn't have a lab that's big enough to do the calibration there, things like that. So it gives you a real good insight into the actual business. Mm-hmm. Are we circling Caltrack and yep. C three? It just to, for, to remind me of those um, so that's trademarks, what it means. Yep. and then to look them up later. I'll have a note somewhere, I'm sure, to go to a website, do things like that, which is stuff that I would do. Okay, service marketing and sales, strategic focus in the highly regulated industries. So they did mention that earlier, right? Mm-hmm. The one that I thought was very interesting here is they say they generally do that their competitors generally do not have a range of capabilities as broad as ours, mm-hmm. and I think that's true. Um, from, oh, what shit. I, from what I could find, um, the breadth of what they do, and also the fact that they're both a distributor and uh, do the calibration, mm-hmm. um, does mean that they have sort of um, a broader relationship with the customer. Potentially, they have that possibility compared to a lot of their competitors are smaller, more regional, mm-hmm. do more limited amounts of it. Yep. Okay. Okay, what do we got here? Competition for laboratory instrument services is composed of both small local and regional services, service providers and large multinational OEMs. We believe we are generally financially stronger, service a larger customer base, and are typically able to offer a larger uh, suite of services than many of the small local and regional competitors. Right. So I wrote down their competitive strengths and the way I did it is that I said breath being the most important thing that I circled that and put that down there. And then I listed the four things that they list, but I in particular starred turnaround time. Mm-hmm. That was interesting to me that one of the things that they think they compete on and that they can beat competitors on is uh, turning around the calibration time faster than, um, than their competitors. Mm-hmm. So that's always the thing. That Why do you circle this? The breath? Uh, just because from other things that I had read about the company so far in this uh, annual report, I'm believing that that's really the basis on which they compete, that they can uh, have a broader relationship with the customer. They can be more of a one-stop shop mm-hmm. compared to some of their competitors. And you start turnaround time. Yep. Because I thought... He lists out their competitive advantages. Yeah. That's so what do you... Can you read this out. for people that can't read? Sure. So uh, financial resource, they think they have greater financial resources, technical resources, uh, turnaround time, and the flexibility to... Um, uh, what was that? To... <laughs> flexibility to is it react quickly yes. to customer yes see i i, I just could read your handwriting better than you can man yeah <laughs> so um the, the one that stood out to me is turnaround time the other things are things that they, they often say that companies often say flexibility to respond to customer needs blah 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 we have better technical resources we have better financial resources those are very typical things for companies that are the biggest in their field usually to say if they're small they'll say they have less of those resources uh-huh. but the thing that stood out because they don't say it in most industries is that they compete on turnaround time uh-huh. usually they say things like price Okay, service quality. Okay, a lot of stuff in the 10K does become redundant, right? Copy yeah. and paste. Mm-hmm. 
Sure. Which is okay. Pounding your head. Yeah, this part is a uh, okay. We got three right here. Yep. So we have a warning again, and do you see what the warning is? In for? recent years, online-based distributors have become more prevalent. Yes. So what are they talking about? I think they're talking about Amazon, and they will say Amazon at some point. But that that to me sounded the same as when they talked about the price competition. But um, the things that did that I did underline, which is always important to me, is basically who they think. Uh, this is a very important sentence, and companies usually don't include this one. The decision to buy is generally made by plant engineers, quality managers, or their purchasing personnel. That's really useful information. I, that's useful information for scuttlebutt, any of those sort of things. I'm always interested in customer behavior, and specifically who is the person at the customer, if it's a business-to-business -business, um, company, uh, that actually makes the decisions, who decides this. And so is it decided like at the plant level? Is it decided at a corporate level? Who actually makes the decision? Is it someone inside? Mm -hmm. uh, who isn't the manager of that plant? Whatever. And get an idea for what their concerns might be. and how. I mean, that's one of the most important things of all, is figuring out who actually buys this. And mm -hmm. I mean that even for a consumer um, brand thing. Like if you, there's someone's buying a brand of whatever for a household, okay, is it the head of the household that's making the decision? Is it the person who does the shopping? Is it someone influencing it who who um, has like a brand preference or something? Same sort of thing. Who's actually making the decision? See, and I like that they describe why. So in a couple pages before, you're talking about the distribution revenue and how unpredictable it is mm -hmm. and how it's all over the map. And they, they pretty much say why. As a result, sales to distribution customers are somewhat unpredictable and potentially not reoccurring. Yeah. You know? It is a very descriptive 10K. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Go more into the business. While focusing on strategic pricing initiatives that drove oh, incremental gross yeah. profit. So <laughs> if you see it, I just was translating corporate jargon. So they said they were focusing on strategic pricing initiatives which drove incremental gross profit. That means they raised their prices. <laughs> okay. So it means two things. It means they raised their prices and they sold more of expensive products and less of cheap products. Right here, you know, for those the, that yeah. are watching. So that's a typical thing to say. Strategic pricing initiatives means raise your prices. Mm -hmm. um, pricing investments means you lowered your prices. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Just come um, on and say it. <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, it's also, it could be mixed. Yeah. Know, but it, it's they raised their prices, yeah. Okay. Uh, this is check marketing stuff. Transcat website. Yeah, so this just reminded me to check their website because they said they launched a next generation website in 2019. So I'd be curious to see what it looks like. I had actually looked at this coming once before, so I saw what their website looked like. Oh, here you go. Product listings on online marketplaces such as Amazon and Google Shopping. Yeah. And so that, that definitely stood out to me. And that's the one that, and also the, how they advertise, right? So they talk about search engine optimization, pay-per-click, all that sort of stuff. Beginning so, with the 21st century. Yeah. Um, they actually do quite a lot of advertising, as we'll see. I actually wrote that down. Um, it's a lot of co-advertising stuff, cooperative advertising. Online distributors, including Amazon, yeah, which sells lower the, price point products that become prominent competitors. Yeah, the distribution business to me strikes me sort of like a catalog type business. Like mm -hmm. 50 years ago, it was probably a catalog business that you sent out to these plant managers and things or whoever or you had trade shows and things. And then you would print a catalog maybe once or twice a year back then. I don't know. Um, and now it's a little bit different than that, but same sort of thing, but online. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I mentioned that they have same-day shipping. I also um, highlighted the fact that 10 vendors accounted for 62% of their um, sales. So that they're suppliers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's just typical stuff of highlighting the amount of square foot. And then you break uh, it down, right? We, we shipped approximately 3,500 product orders. 35,000 product orders. Yeah, sorry, yes. 35,000. So that, to me, meant an average of $2,200 per order. Now, of course, an order could be... a bunch of equipment all together. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but this isn't cheap equipment at all. We know that. 
So, I mean, you can think about it being on Amazon. And Amazon order isn't usually too bad. Should we call the customer support number really so, quick? It's nice that they put it in there. I thought yeah, that was nice. interesting. And then they also mentioned that you can fax them. You know, um, in uh, Jeff Bezos' book, right, mm-hmm. uh, when you call Amazon, I, I was reading, what's that one book called again? The That's Everything what, Store? Or? Yeah, The Everything Store. That's yeah. I read it years ago. And they were saying in a meeting, he called their customer support. He wanted somebody to pick up within like, I don't know, a minute or something. Yeah. And they said that he called their customer support. And it was like, two minutes or three minutes or something he just was not happy with and they said his blood was just boiling in the in the meeting because he wanted somebody to pick up like instantly yeah my dad ran a call center and i remember sometimes being on vacation with him and him calling in and not liking how long it took yeah. for it and then calling the people to yell at them so okay. nicely but <laughs> nicer than bezos probably but yeah. same thing okay more of this that was five seconds before i heard a voice yeah 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 all right our distribution segment has historically been strongest in our third fiscal quarter, while service has historically been strongest in our fourth fiscal yeah, quarter. All good information in reality. Yeah, yeah. Just so when I make an estimate of that, almost uh, all full time employees. Yeah, it's all it says it's almost all full time employees. So, uh oh, we got more explanation points. Yes, customers tend to have relationships with several distributors. So, what does that tell you? That's terrible. That tells me That's that they compete on it's on price. Yes, it, it can be that they compete on price. There can be other issues too. So it can be they compete on price. The other issue you can have is they might not be dropping distributors. It might be an industry where you tend not to drop them once you have them. So I've seen that many times before. A company, a plant or something is buying from like five or six different distributors. And that over time, those distributors actually uh, are offering the same product range so that you could go with one, you know, mm-hmm. but you've been ordering in the past, whatever it is, you know, you've been, you know, this company doesn't sell mops and things, but you always ordered your mops from that company. You always order your plastic bags from that yeah. company and you just haven't looked in to make sure that you, um, rationalize all that and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now with giant corporations, usually they have some sort of programs that like from the top down that push that kind of savings and stuff. But with smaller things, you often don't see that and they have way more distributors than you'd expect. But that creates a problem obviously because if they have those relationships, then like you said, price. Mm-hmm. You know, if you already have a relationship with someone, they say, oh, I can beat them on price, then you're going to go with them, sure. So I would much rather that they don't have that, right? Sure. You know? Um, so we can see the difficulties in the distribution yeah. business of what- This is the risk about. section, by the way. Okay. Okay, let's see. We expect that our quarterly results of operations will fluctuate. Such fluctuations can cause our stock price to decline. Yes. And then you start that. And I start two things here, which is funny, because the risk section you'd think would be where I see the negative things about the company. Yeah. But I saw two things here that excited me yeah, a lot about the company. Relatively fixed. And it, it's so it, they're warning me that their expenses are relatively fixed in the service segment. And so if they decline, they'll lose money. They will like they'll decline their EBITDA will decline a lot more than their um, sales, that kind of thing. But I'm actually thinking, well, if it goes up, then if their expenses are relatively fixed, this is good. I want to see relatively fixed in mm-hmm. growing business. The other thing I highlighted was especially skilled service technicians, they said, that that's a difficult thing for them to find. And I thought that was interesting, too, because if I've seen many times with companies where if they have to grow quickly – in an industry like this, then they have trouble because they have to pay pretty high wages to get people. They often can't hire as many people as they want. There's certain difficulties when they start expanding like this. Um, There's just a bunch of kinks that they have to work out early on uh, if they're having trouble getting the employees they need. And then like after a year or two after they hire these people, the productivity is just going to be a lot better. I see a lot with companies doing this where they're actually warning you that it's hard for them to hire enough people to grow as fast as they want. So that combined with the fixed part makes me think their margins could be a lot higher in the future. So we'll see. In the service business, not the distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's more trademark more about their trademarks. Yeah. Um, 
volatility in the oil and gas industry has had in the past and could mm -hmm. have in the future a negative impact on our operating results. Basically, I'm just circling here that they're in life sciences, their biggest business, but they're also in uh, oil and gas, just as a note to me that they're not just in highly regulated businesses. Okay, talking about debt. Yeah, so this is just talking, just making sure that I know how much debt they have and stuff. So they have $21 million. I highlight the fact that it's a 6 It's interesting that they... they uh, Warn about the trading volume? Yeah, and they talk about approximately 20,000 shares a day. This is a very, very detailed 10K. I've never... I don't know if I've they seen that before. They all include the boilerplate of like, we are an illiquid stock or something, but they won't tell me how much volume they have. Yeah, yeah. It's very easy. Yeah. Everyone knows it. They, yeah, this is an incredibly detailed 10K. This is a great 10K. Uh, that Puerto Rico I just circled. It, they talk about hurricanes. I'm not paying much attention to that, but I did circle Puerto Rico because you know a lot of mm -hmm. um, pharmaceutical stuff is done down in Puerto Rico. Good lord! So. What is this word right here? <laughs> uh, Something basically all leased. It's oh, it's an L. Leased. Got it. Basic. Basically, basically all, all leased. So we're looking at the property <laughs> section right now. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I had circled. <laughs> Leased and owned. It says the following yeah. table presents hmm. are leased and owned. And I said, hmm, because, you know, it's kind of useful to tell me which you lease and which you own. Yeah. You know, usually a company, if they do this, say something like, uh, the f you know, we own almost all our properties. Yeah, and yeah. We list them all or we lease almost all our properties and then they just list them all or they actually break it down, leased and owned. This one didn't. But then if you look and you look at the footnotes, which I did, that's why I said basically all leased because it has this thing with the footnotes where it says property owned by the company and then it was this one was sold and yada, yada. And so that's explaining to me that everything else is leased. So this does not matter. They don't have any valuable property, basically, <laughs> as you'll see. Um, oh, that's just a note that the shareholders record are 446. I just mentioned that that's greater than 300. So they, it would be hard for the company to go dark. They're on NASDAQ. I don't mm -hmm. think they'd want to go dark, but dividends are credit agreement as amended limits our ability to pay cash dividends to 3 million in any fiscal year. That's interesting because for a company this strong, um, they've never paid cash dividends and don't plan to, but for a company this strong, it is interesting to actually have a credit agreement that has a specific limit on the cash dividends. There are usually some limits that they talk about, about stuff with dividends and buybacks and stuff that they can't go crazy with them when doing certain borrowing. But as we'll see with this company, they're actually borrowing a meaningful enough amount. I forget if it's like one and a half times EBITDA or something that their uh, deal with their bank actually does limit it to this amount on the dividends. And it's just something to think about. There's mm -hmm. enough that I'm not worried about this company's debt, but there's enough that we want to be aware this is different than a company that has net cash. Okay, what do you circle here? So you circle something in a footnote on it. Uh, I it's said not much of, of a plan. They they have they had a um, stock option, a stock buyback plan. Yeah, to buy one million shares. <laughs> one million shares. Yeah, yeah there's several. One million dollars. Yeah, one million, sorry, one million dollars. And this is a company that is several hundred million dollar market cap. So That doesn't even offset the 2% no. dilution. Mm -hmm. No. And I don't think they never did it. If I remember right, they don't do things under the plan. It's just there to offset some dilution, and they mm -hmm. didn't really use it. All right, selected financial data. Yes, so usual things. Highlighted gross profit, highlighted operating income, and highlighted diluted earnings per share. Then I said something else here, which had something to do with the debt. Um, Does that say... I think I believe... Something to be more expensive. I think I said the stock got to be a lot more expensive while the debt also increased. So the enterprise value went up a lot, mm -hmm. basically, is what I said. Because <laughs> if you look on this chart, I can see the closing stock price. So the stock price yeah. doubled, and the debt doubled. It didn't really, but 
bear with me, it more than doubled the stock price and slightly less than doubled the debt. Mm -hmm. But what that's telling me is that the enterprise value went up a lot because of that combination of Mm -hmm. things, obviously. So I'm just pointing it out that this is a much more expensive stock, unfortunately, than it was in 2015. And I actually researched this company back in 2015 or so. So this is, you know, um, which doesn't matter. You don't want to anchor on what you looked at in the past. Mm -hmm. Okay, talking a little bit more about it, the service business. Yeah, so 6% organic growth, that was a point that I made. Um, There's a big part here. I guess we should pay attention to this. So I did, again, you see the exclamation points, or do you see question marks? Uh, Yeah, no, no, exclamation points, yeah. So it mentions that sales in our distribution segment are generally not consumable items. Um, If an item is not consumable, it's basically a durable. It's more cyclical sort of thing. And so what we mean by that is just the difference between... um, you know, dishwasher detergent and a dishwasher. Yeah, and you said more cyclical right here. Yeah, if you're a distributor of a dishwasher, then in good years, you're going to sell a lot of them, but in bad years, everyone will put it off till next year um, buying from you. Whereas if you're selling the detergent, they got to buy the same amount every month. Uh, so, you know, and they, the company's very upfront about this. They say instrument purchased as replacements, upgrades are for expansion. We also knew this because this company sells used equipment and rents equipment. And you don't usually sell used and um, rent equipment for stuff that isn't durable. So the durability of it is a big difference for a distributor. You want to distribute um, consumables generally as a better business than, dur- and than durables. Okay, more on the financial overview. Mm-hmm. There's just a slight note that they do 52 weeks, sometimes in 53, so it's a reminder to me to keep in mind that it's a 2% difference. Almost 2%. More diluted earnings per share. Mm-hmm. Then we get into the accounting uh, stuff. Okay, accounts receivable. You have a check mark. Yeah, so it just means that's what I expected. So mm-hmm. basically, this is just you know all this stuff is gap. It yeah. has to be following gap stuff. But if you ask me how would the company be keeping the receivables, I would say it's recorded net of the allowance for doubtful accounts. And I did highlight that after all attempts to collect a receivable have failed, the receivable is written off. Uh, some companies are more conservative than that. But the receivables are so insignificant, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this company is only actually writing off the receivable after all attempts have failed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inventory, the way they account for that. Yep, and there's a check mark there because it's stated the lower of cost or net realized valuable uh, value. Uh, I did circle average cost, so just peop- so people know, generally your inventory is going to be stated at one of three things for GAP. You're going to have LIFO, last in, first out, FIFO, first in, first out, or you're going to have average cost. This is average cost. Mm-hmm. They don't make a huge difference unless you have lots of inflation. Or Interesting you point right here. Our inventory commodity. typically turns several times per year. Yeah, wow, this company really does give a lot of information. Yeah. yeah, I mean, a lot of times you could you could figure all this stuff out. You, you just got to do the legwork yourself, out. you know. Yeah. But they're just like stating it. Right. Usually they say something like, "We're not. We don't." Um, check our inventory for uh, obsolescence that often because it turns very quickly mm-hmm. or something, you know this company actually says that they turn several times per year you most companies say that they just check once a year or something which is a hint that their inventory moves pretty quickly so they're not worried about it whereas companies that are worried about inventory obsolescence talk about how they uh, check for impairments more often and stuff mm-hmm. we had 34.5 million of recorded goodwill it's a huge amount of goodwill. I oh, said, a lot, said a lot of, of goodwill, goodwill for a company this size. Acquisitions must be done above book value all the time or something like that. Yeah. what that note says. Yeah. So that's true. So it's just how you could literally get little subtle things to, t- to paint the picture. Right. As long as you're remembering like what the market cap of the company is. If you remember, I don't know if you remember that when we looked at shareholder um, equity, shareholder equity had only a few years ago only been about 30 million. And here we have 30 some million in goodwill. Yeah. So it's mostly not tangible uh, equity. Yeah. 
Okay, you have a couple question marks right here. Uh, yes. The units generally invest following the third fiscal year from the date of the grant, and some of these grants are subject to some. certain... The yeah. question mark had to do with some. some. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think this is that important. Like I said, I do the dilution thing. You can look at what I highlight and stuff. This isn't that weird a plan. My general impression is this company is very freely giving out uh, stock. Mm -hmm. They're very freely giving out stock. Uh, this is not a very significant at all part, but I did note it. Um, you saw exclamation points, so you just see what words bother me. So the company says they have a post-retirement healthcare plan. So that's the title of this section. So that's mm -hmm. all I know at this point. And it says that it has defined benefit. So you see, defined benefit has a lot of exclamation points because I'm worried this company is, has defined benefit as opposed to a defined contribution post-retirement healthcare plan, which is worrying me, which includes things like long-term long care insurance. This company has a lot of employees. I don't want them to be running a defined benefit plan for all those employees. Yeah. Then I highlight, though, oh, it's just for retired corporate executives and their spouses. So this is just a perk for execs. Uh -huh. Yeah. And we'll get into that more with this company. If you see, past execs have an interesting relationship with the company. Say nice. That's a good perk. Yeah, that's not bad. All right. Results of operations. It's more bringing it down. Talking about uh, gross profit percentages and stuff like that. Yeah. So I said gross profit is basically about 50-50 now, but... Um, we're passing the point where growth in service in, and um, not in distribution will make Transcat more about a service business. So what I meant by that is if we're at 50-50 now, but service is growing quickly and distribution isn't really growing at all, we're quickly going to get to the point where it's 60-70% service. So uh, this is a 50-50 business right now, but it's going, to be a lot of, um, it's going to be a lot of more service business pretty soon. All right. Sorry. I want to stand up. Back sorry, it's a longer okay. podcast. <laughs> okay, let's see. Okay, so we got the revenue right here. So mm -hmm. talking again about um, it was approximately six percent. Yep. 6 all stuff that I mean, we learned about all yeah. this before. Mm -hmm. Like I said, a lot of it kind of becomes redundant, but it's good because it pounds in your head. Yep. Then I mentioned the service uh, stuff includes acquisitions. They do a very nice thing here with the trailing twelve months. They explicitly say that they think that it should always be evaluated over a trailing twelve month basis. And I agree with that. And it's just nice the company does it for me automatically so I can do it. So they just don't focus on like quarter over quarter or fiscal year over fiscal year. They actually just have a moving thing of every quarter over a 12-month period. It's mm -hmm. just a nice table to have. Not all companies do it. Yeah, I haven't seen like any of that. Yeah, I'm not sure it's useful. It's the kind of thing management will be looking at all the time, but mm -hmm. it doesn't necessarily um, list. Yeah, they get um, very in-depth. Mm-hmm. Yep. So let's see if we have any sections that are more interesting there. Question mark? Yes. So again, some. It's just... Yeah, what is that? Yeah. It provides some incremental gross margin. It was helpful to know, I think that... Or, I'm thinking that if their f expenses are fairly fixed, then the organic growth in the service revenue is going to increase their margins a lot. And that's my expectation with this company, that mm -hmm. they grow earnings a lot in the future, way faster than we think. But They're basically they telling you that. I think they're telling us that, yeah. They haven't done it yet. I mean, this year they have, but before this year they weren't really doing it. So there's a question of why that is. But yeah, it does look like margins might explode in the future. Upwards, yeah, mm -hmm. in the service business. Okay, adjusted EBITDA. Mm -hmm. Everyone's yeah. favorite non-gap so measure. I only mentioned two things here. Uh, it struck me that depreciation amortization was substantial, I think I said, and that the non-cash uh, stock compensation was meaningful, meaning that um, for a company that's doing only $7 million in, uh, in net income, having DNA of $6 million is a lot, and having um, 
uh, non-cash uh, stock compensation or whatever of, of a million when you only have seven million. And net income, again, is significant. So I mark those two things. Nothing else really matters that much or was odd. Just there's a lot of depreciation and, and there's a lot of um, stock compensation. Okay. This isn't that important. I just mentioned it. It's very basic. They have a credit agreement that has a three times maximum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is very That's good typical. To know. Yeah. It's very typical for a company that isn't highly leveraged yet. Cash flows. Mm-hmm. So that's got the cash flow from operations. Um, the company helpfully also says the number of days of sales outstanding. You can calculate that yourself, but it's nice. Lots of companies don't do it. So that just gives you an idea of there. We're talking about turns and stuff like that. Their account receivables. So this is how quickly they're, account, they're uh, collecting their accounts receivable. Okay, investing activities. You say about $2 million per year spent by rental assets. Yeah, they're actually spending about $2 million in cash to buy rental assets. So that was giving me some idea of what the size of the rental business might be. This one was interesting. So, hmm. Yeah, so I put a note here that they have a registration statement uh, in December of 2017 that from time to time they can issue up to uh, $50 million. Wow. That's a lot for a company with their market cap. But what I said is it could just be a filler number, mm-hmm. meaning like the same thing that we would do or anyone would do with stuff like that filing with the SEC. If the SEC lets you put in any number, $20 million, $50 million, $100 million, it costs the same to do the filing, um, and you might decide that you want to do $22 million instead of $20 million, you don't necessarily put in a realistic number. You just put in the number that gives you the most um, room to work with. Sure. So $50 million is probably that. But it does mean that they have the option of issuing a ton of stock. So Good to know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Outlook. Yes. So I said margins haven't moved much yet, have they? Um, and... Uh, and then I also said that they give guidance. So mm-hmm. just meaning that they, at the end of this outlook, they actually give wow. explicit guidance for next year. This is a great 10K. Yeah. Anticipates total capital expenditures to be approximately like 7.8 to 8.2. Guidance is for next year, yeah. Mm-hmm. They also, there's, a, I didn't highlight this too, but just so people know this, when a company gives you income tax guidance for next year, even if they don't give you guidance on earnings and stuff, you can guess some of that because you can use other information that you have about the fact that they would have to have earnings of a certain, um, that they have to basically be earning quite a bit of money to pay taxes that are normal tax amounts and stuff. Look at maintenance and existing asset replacements in fiscal year 2020 are expected to be consistent with fiscal year 2019 mm-hmm. and approximately 1 to 1. 1.5 million. Yep. They really break it down. Yeah. I feel like normally... Like you can get this information, but it's in like the transcripts of like the calls yeah. or something. It's never like right. in the 10K. Not, 10K. not often. One thing is this company is now trying to communicate a lot with investors, but it was a small company and it has the attitude of a small company that way. And microcap 10Ks are often much more interesting than bigger company 10Ks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is just a thing saying that. So just for me to do the math, the way they phrase it is they have to pay $200,000 a month uh, to repay their loan. And I just said that's $2.4 million a year just because they don't mention that mm-hmm. that exact amount. So, um, you have the the rate, the rate, 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 fixed rate. Yeah, those are pretty normal rates, yeah, 3 to 5%. Um, and then I just basically crossed out foreign currency because their only exposure to foreign currency is they get about 8% of their sales from Canada. I also just have a check mark saying they don't they only use hedging for uh, th- that they do not use hedging for speculative purposes, mm-hmm. yeah. So, Uh, that's just highlighting the auditor. I don't recognize the auditor, so I have to look. And if you don't recognize it, we always look it up on the PCAOB website. Correct, yep. Um, 
<clears throat> if I remember right, the otter is from like Rochester or something though. So yeah, otters from Rochester yep. and there's a check. It's basically saying, yeah. So that just tell, is a note telling me to look at the PCAOB report. It uh, mentions that they've had the otter for a while and that the otter is in the same town. Which makes sense, right? Like, like I said, we've talked about before, if the company's in, does business in New York and their auditor is in, I don't know, California or somewhere like that, you'd right. want to just kind of note that. Yeah. And I want to know, they could have an auditor that does lots of audits in New York state. I just want to know them. So. Right. A lot of the same things because we now get to the financial statements, but we've basically seen this in different forms a couple times already. So I don't think there's a lot to say about that. Um, I just mentioned that there's continuing to be increases in the shares outstanding. If we look down this, there's rarely anything interesting in the comprehensive income. Statement. Here we go. All right. So the balance sheet, there's a lot more here. I've crossed certain things out. I've circled stuff. I've written notes. So maybe I could walk through what those are. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So what I've put here on the left-hand side is a quick calculation for me of the kinds of um, assets that the company's actually using, the actual tangible assets it's using in its day-to-day -day business. This is sort of like our version of the magic formula. In fact, I think it's very close to the actual magic formula. Mm -hmm. But the three items that matter a lot, usually that capture most of what a company really uh, has invested in it, is uh, receivables, inventory, and property plant and equipment. So I added those numbers up together, you got $61 million. Now I said there's offsets to this, and those are the payables and the accrued expenses. Those are not big numbers here. So once I take those out, it's about $20 million versus about $61 million. So that's about $40 million by my count in net tangible assets that are actually tied up in the day-to-day -day business of running Transcat. So this balance sheet is going to tell you a lot of other things. It's going to say things about their total assets. They have 105 million total assets, but goodwill is 35 million of that. That's not a tangible thing. Intangibles is 5 million of that. Mm -hmm. You take those out and you get a number that's like 60 million, but then about 20 million of that is offset by working liabilities. So I'm saying shareholders are really on the hook for about $40 million in running this business the way it is now. And that gives you an idea when you compare it to things like what their returns are and stuff, um, sort of what their return on capital is, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I also highlighted the retained earnings and mentioned that they never paid a dividend and don't expect to. Um, and then just in general, I'm saying that the balance sheet here, I don't think matters a lot because there's no safety here from buying on the balance sheet. The balance sheet is about $60 million in equity. And then most of that is intangible. So mm -hmm. I've subtracted that out and said, you're left with about 20 million intangible equity. That's obviously a tiny amount compared to like the market cap and things like that. So you're buying this company based on earning power from, uh, sort of intangibles that it has, customer relationships, brands. Which tells you about out. what about the return on capital? The return on capital is good on the tangible yeah, capital, high. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. But on the acquisitions, much lower because they have all this goodwill. They always mm -hmm. acquire it way above book value, yeah. Down in the cash flow statement. Yeah, again, just saying DNA is meaningful. There was a note here about something I, I said might be nothing. So, and probably is nothing, I'm only looking at two years, but if you notice, this is a fast-growing company, and yet accrued compensation and other liabilities shows a use of cash. Uh, that's what that means when it's in parentheses, meaning that it didn't expand, so it shrank, of uh, 686000 and 804000 um, Normally, you'd expect that to be growing, uh, and not using up cash as the company's growing if it's a fast-growing business. So, but I only have two years to go on, so like I said, it might be nothing, it's not a big item, but it's something that if I... If we're researching this company further, you know, I would look at, or if I was talking to a CFO of the company, or something, I'd be like, "What is? Why is this happening?" Mm -hmm. And they'd explain it. Um, the property that just I mentioned that it includes uh, rental stuff in it. So because 
that might be kind of different in a sense. Rental equipment is almost like inventory for most companies, right? Mm-hmm. But it's in their PP, it's in their um, capex line. Um, and then a lot of this is going to be repeats for this, <laughs> yeah. but we will get to. There we go. So interesting stuff. So I did some calculations here. I don't think they were very useful. Um, but generally, just looking at the useful uh, life, I put down some things where I thought. Um, so uh, I said it, machinery, equipment, and software, they all lump together at 2 to 15 years of depreciation. Um, that's not helpful to me because it's just too many broad in a number of years and too much um, different stuff in it, so it's not useful. A lot of companies will break those into separate categories. Um, rental equipment gave me five to eight years, so I said, is that really how long the useful life is? Try to do some calculations of how much they would have of that. Buildings, I mentioned that they are actually um, depreciating buildings over 39 years. I think that's the slowest rate of depreciation you could possibly do on buildings, which is fine. But I don't think it matters. I think buildings hold their value well, and I don't think it's a big item for this company. But I just noticed. I was gonna say they, of, you said they lease pretty much all their properties. Yeah, too. there's just nothing in here that tells me they're particularly conservative about how they're depreciating things, and they have high depreciation. So I had thought, you know, if they have high depreciation, maybe they're being particularly yeah, fast, fast depreciating, yeah. and I don't see that at all here. Yeah. Now they could be with the machinery part with the two to fifteen years of everything's like two years, but I don't know. You know, that would usually be more like their software's being capitalized at that. Um, so let's see what else is interesting here. Um, though they talk about the catalog, mm-hmm. so um, and it, I only just mentioned the fact that they amortize the cost of the catalog over eighteen months, which gives you some idea about how useful the advertising is for them. You would think that an annual catalog they would um, amortize over twelve months, but they don't. So they probably get a significant amount of orders from it later. This is <laughs> a lot of stuff. I don't think it's that important to understand the company. I think you'll rarely see this with other stuff. This gets into rebates and it gets into cooperative advertising that they have. Um, and I go into some calculations of trying to figure out how much that means this company is actually advertising. What I'm generally saying is this company has like a significant amount of advertising and a significant amount of rebates um, compared to most companies. You'll see that's basically all I'm talking about there. Shipping and handling costs. Yeah, so that just breaks out the shipping, the handling, and then the total shipping handling cost. It's not a big item overall compared to their total sales. Um, so they still break it down though. Yep, they pretty do. incredible. Mm-hmm. It's only a few percent. It's like two percent or something. Let's see. This is the part that I said when people ask what they can skip. Usually, recently issued accounting pronouncements you can skip. Sometimes there'll be one that actually applies to your company in a big way, but usually this is your company explaining why it barely has anything to do with them. Um, this is just the detailed property and equipment table. Um, again, with this company, it doesn't matter that much. As you can see, though, it's all in machinery, equipment, and software. And unfortunately, that's the category where they said they lump it all together and say they depreciate yeah. over 2 to 15 years. So not useful. Uh, <laughs> a lot of this 10K is very useful, but how this company is depreciating stuff, not useful. No. Long-term debt. Yep, and this just goes into detail about the three times debt to EBITDA. That that's a agreement. They actually have an agreement um, that forces them to keep it at that. Um, Under the credit agreement, borrowings that may be useful for business acquisitions are limited to $20 million per year. Mm-hmm. Good information, no? Yep, and they have they haven't spent anywhere near that. But again, like the shelf, uh, the registration thing, um, it's interesting because they put it in the agreement. I mean, if they, you know, the bank obviously wanted some restriction on it, but it's a pretty big number. Mm-hmm. So they are, might want to do a big acquisition. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that just mentions they pledged everything. Sometimes you have agreements where you uh, don't have to pledge everything as security and stuff like that, or there are certain protections for different parts of your company and stuff, and there's none of that here. Mm-hmm. Shows where their income comes from. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's all U.S. This is all that really matters. Um, <clears throat> the, those dots just mean those items are unusual or significant, but otherwise nothing here matters. As such, its effective tax rate, tax rate in fiscal year 2020 be between 22 and 23%. Yeah, so I basically said the federal statutory rate is 21%, so you could basically use that. They do pay some state tax, but I don't worry about it. No, this is just interesting that they have. Um, so that's a very typical um, uh, profit-sharing plan that they have. So like the 401k plan that they have is very, very typical. But the 15% discount on the employee stock purchase plan, some companies have something like that, but it's interesting and it's meant to increase um, stock ownership by employees, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Post-retirement health care plans. Ew. <laughs> yeah, long-term care. Yeah, That's expensive. <laughs> long-term care. So I did write down, ew, that the company is covering long-term care <laughs> on a defined benefit basis for uh, its executives uh, under the officer plan and spouses, too. Uh-huh. And eligible spouses. Yeah, I was going to say, it's very nice. Means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, wait, wait. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> and they're eligible spouses. Yep. Um, and I wrote perk next to it, that this is basically a perk. Mm-hmm. I say it's not a big deal, but why does it exist for a company like this? This company was listed, founded in the 1960s, et cetera. Um, is that the explanation for why it is? I don't know. You know, this was more common a long time ago. And for businesses like that, this is a company that was around in, you know, wherever, New York or something 50 years ago. Um, you know, those kinds of perks for executives were more common. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, a new company that's this size wouldn't be spending this much money on, um, post-retirement benefits for its, uh, executives. Yeah. Uh, that just mentions that it's funded as needed, that they don't have like a... Um, investment um, portfolio and stuff to do it. I didn't get into a lot of detail about this. Again, this is just because at this point I had read so much about the company's stock compensation stuff. I just feel they issue a lot of stock. Uh, they, they give a lot of stock out. So I didn't go through all the details of how their restricted stock works and stuff. As we know from me working on this earlier, I by this point I just decided, look, I'm going to um, deduct 2% a year uh, in returns from them. I, they probably will be lower than that in terms of what they actually dilute, but that's what I'm going to figure it is. And I think I said that there, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, this mentions no inner segment sales, which is a big item. So one thing that makes it very hard to judge certain companies is how they account for inner segment sales, meaning that they have um, their service segment does work for the distribution segment or vice versa. And then what pro- gross profit they choose to price things internally at the company can really distort uh, profitability. Here we know there's no inner segment sales, so that means the profitability numbers we're getting for the segments are very clean because they're all the external uh, customers. Segment and geographic data? Mm-hmm. Um, not that interesting, except I do do a calculation, which I don't know if everyone else does, which is the percent of gross profit that converts to EBIT. So everyone does uh, EBIT divided by sales, right? Mm-hmm. That's the EBIT margin. But I also do EBIT divided by gross profit. Sometimes I find it to be more helpful. So far, distribution and service. What's that word? Oh, so right, the handwriting. The, so Gross and operating margins are, are remarkably similar. similar. And it's hard for me to believe that will continue to be the case. We've kind of hinted at this. Before. And they've, they've had hinted like at that. The, the, yeah. the service margin will explode at some point, but we'll see. Here you go. Now you could get the actual um, 
you know, segment information. We always mm -hmm. spend a lot of time in this area, get the free cash flow on yep. each segment. And, you know, you could, if you want to do with some of the parts, you could think about it from that perspective. But I think it's always good to do this. We always spend a lot of time in this yeah. section. This is one that is near the back of the 10K usually, and we spend a ton of time. It's there. usually like the last couple yeah. pages, As but I think see. it's like one of the most important parts of the 10K, yep. you mm -hmm. know? So they break it down, right? So they show the total assets of the service business, the distribution business, the DNA that comes from it, the capex that goes into it, and it's nice because they give you like the operating income. So you could get an EBITDA number and then kind of do like a return on capital or you know stuff mm -hmm. like that. So we spent a lot of time in this segment. Absolutely. Yeah. And you very nicely did zero calculations. No, by this point we had seen all this stuff. <laughs> they talked about it on segment basis from the very beginning. This yeah. company is very clear about the two segments being different and talks about them very differently. Even press releases, everything. This is much different than most companies. Most companies like kind of lump it all together and then just talk about the segment stuff in a, the back part. Mm -hmm. Here they really talk about it as if they're two different businesses. Yeah, but you really, if you really want to find out about the business, spend a lot of time in this area, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah. Puerto Rico, remember? Life Sciences and Biotech and FDA regulated. Yeah, it's probably whether in Puerto Rico. That's a lot of stuff. Why do they do that? <laughs> what? Why do they do that? Uh, yeah. So, um, let's see. Uh, leases. Leases. Yeah, they do lease a lot. That's all. It's a lot of leases. A lot of leases. Then uh, I said that they paid something like 3.8 times tangible book for this particular acquisition that they did, just as a note to myself of like what they're probably doing these acquisitions at. Um and then if we just keep going, we will see that stuff. I almost never do anything about the quarterly stuff. Um, oh, that's just a note to me that, so small companies often choose to put their ownership and stuff like that, like stock ownership, who their biggest shareholders are, how much stock is owned by directors, executives, things like that, in their 10K. And Transcat does not. They file it as part of their proxy statement, which is their uh, definitive 14A or whatever it would be. Um, it's probably the one that actually has the numbers in it. But it'll be something with the number 14 in it. It's a proxy statement that you'll see each year. It's like what's sent out for shareholders to vote on and stuff. Um, a lot of small companies put it right in the 10K, though. So then we get down to the exhibits, and we'll be out of the 10K in a yep. second. And we'll be into investor presentation. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh <clears throat> Okay. Okay, here we go. So they actually, because this was an annual report, included stuff after the 10K. And so you can see the really strange things that I highlight and stuff hmm. and what I care about. So we have, hmm, I thought it was very interesting that the company does not hold an actual annual meeting. Oh, yeah, meeting. they do a virtual annual meeting. They just do a virtual annual meeting. So this is another thing that I felt like this company has shifted to really being having an active investor relations push for a company this size and stuff. So it's probably a less overlooked stock, things like that. Um, so, you know, that, that's all that doing a virtual meeting. I don't think it's bad to do a virtual meeting. I think that you'll get more engagement that way. Um, I mentioned who their investor relations one is, circled the email, stuff like that. Let's see, retired chief executive officer, still on the board. Yes. Chairman of the board. Yeah, so I made some notes here. Um, <clears throat> so the notes I made, if you're uh, noticing, is, oh, so the notes were just that their lawyers and their accountants and stuff are in Rochester. It's just worth noting. But um, the other thing um, is that I highlighted two things here that stood out to me. Um, yeah, it may be in, not indicating anything. They have a lot of vice presidents. Mm -hmm. they, they are very free with the title of vice president, uh, which is fine, but sometimes it gives you hints about an organization if everyone's a vice president or a managing director or whatever, uh, or no one is. And then the other one here that I noted is that they have an incredible amount of 
chief previous chief executive yeah. right mm-hmm. so they have um retired chief executive officer president chief executive officer right that's the current one they have a retired one there so this board is retired full, chief executive officer right. and how and how about um uh yeah and then almost everyone else i could be wrong but virtually everyone else i think there was one that i noticed isn't which is the one on the audit committee i didn't know who that is janelle capital um but the other ones seem to me to either be retired executives of the company or the current uh, executives of the company or they're local to Rochester, basically, mm-hmm. right? If we're going through these, I recognize some of these names of these companies and things. They're Rochester-type uh, area companies. So it's a lot of local people who would serve on boards, and then it's a lot of people who are, uh, had been with the company, mm-hmm. like running it and stuff. It's just good stuff to know, board. Right? It's yeah. good to know what, that, what the board looks like, yeah. Um, yeah, and then this is the presentation that they did. At the mm-hmm. Let's see if you... You know, meaning if I highlighted anything. What happened here? I don't know. Um, yeah. Research. I highlighted some stuff, so I highlighted the research coverage hmm. and what they said. With margin. See, we do read everything. Look at this. <laughs> With margin. The little little fine print. <laughs> Margins continuing to benefit from productivity gains. You said, hmm. Yeah. What did you write here? I can't read your handwriting. Uh, I hmm. don't know. It's, it said in the future. <laughs> I don't know what that says there. Um, so, uh, yeah, again, thinking about whether the margins could be a lot higher in the future. Um, Not that growthy for a high PE company. Correct. For the consolidated revenue. However, I thought that for the consolidated operating income of 11%, that is more in line with it. So this is a high PE company. I forget if the PE was 27 or something when I um, wrote it up. Something along those lines. Uh, 7% annual increase in sales. That's not that amazing for a company with a P like that. Usually, you know, I don't want to say they never get that, but that alone doesn't explain it. But if you're getting a, a double-digit increase in operating income, then uh, that would explain why you'd have a P of like 30. Mm-hmm. Um, Service segment continues to deliver. Talking yeah, about it. So I talked about are we only back where we were um, with service margin in like uh, – in terms of margins uh, several years ago. So if you look, the margins right now are only at like 7% or so, and actually they were at that about five years ago. Mm -hmm. So I also did a calculation of the operating profit CAGR from service. So it's been increasing 12% a year. So service um, has been increasing profitability by 12% a year. That's important because over time, service will become a bigger part of distribution, bigger than distribution, you know? Mm -hmm. So obviously if they keep doing that, then the entire company is going to grow earnings at 12% a year or better. You can see how interested I am in the distribution. <laughs> this is stuff that's already kind of been covered, basically, mm-hmm. is why it's not marked up. Um, a lot of those are things that I've already read, so that's why we don't have anything marking it up. Well, apparently, you stopped a couple pages ago. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Uh, Transcat, digital transformation, proprietary yeah, C3, usually you get this operational excellence. Of it, of where people can go for it. Um, yeah, usually I'm not marking up. Look at that. that. Look at that marketing is. piece, organic growth strategy yeah. and acquisition strategy. That they just, like they just fit together. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. That part I don't usually mark. They're really trying to market themselves more. Interesting. Um, and th- this is useful. Very acquisitive. It tells you what things they acquired. Yeah. And you can look them up. Um, the unfortunate thing is that there's not much detail about it. Like if you do go online and look for these things, um, they're just distributors that they acquired. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a ton of detail. There is a map thing. Yeah. Here there we go. go. Here's a map. So um, I did make a slight note. Again, Puerto Rico made a note that 
of them being there. I made a slight note over there that I wondered if they had made acquisitions on the West Coast specifically to get more geographic coverage over there because historically they seem to be a Northeastern type company, which by the way, being in life sciences stuff would make sense if you were in the 60s and stuff. New Jersey and and Massachusetts and New York and the places like that are where all the uh, the drug stuff is, not on the West Coast. We didn't talk about They do talk a lot about the long-term and stuff. So mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't mark it up here, but they do talk a lot about that compared to most companies. I think that's it. Yeah. Cool. Uh, and what was your final thoughts? Oh, just kidding. Just kidding. Segment adjusted EBITDA reconciliation. Yeah. I think all I said is that over the last three years, they've increased their EBITDA, uh, their EBITDA at 18% a year. For the service for segment. The service segment. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if they continue to do that, to be honest. But Interesting. Yep. And you, wrote, and you wrote it up for Focus Compound on the website. I did write it up for Focus What were your final thoughts on the company? I liked it a lot. However, it had two things that I kind of mentioned, or three things that kind of held me back. So one has some debt, which means it might be leveraged while you own it. I don't think it will. But that's always a caution that I want to warn people. The same stock without debt is always more attractive than the stock with debt because they're not going to deleverage if they have no debt probably. They're not going to just pile up cash. And they might put leverage on while you own the business, so that's a help. Here they already have like one and a half times EBITDA on debt or something. So that was one concern. Two, they don't pay a dividend and have no plans to ever pay a dividend. Mm-hmm. Three, they dilute they're by They're limited, by the way, too. Yeah, and, and they uh, dilute by up to 2% a year. So what I said is if you take the worst-case scenario of that, you can easily find lots of companies that pay a 2% dividend yield, lots mm-hmm. of stocks that pay you yeah. 2%. And you can find lots of companies that pay you 2% and don't dilute at all. So you're starting 4% a year behind with Transcat because you're not getting any dividend yield, whereas the average S&P company or whatever probably gives you 2%. And you're getting diluted more than the average company too. So like, you know, if you were buying a no growth type company or whatever, it would probably be paying you a 2% dividend, plus it wouldn't be diluting at all. So you have to beat that 4%. But what I said is I think that they can do it. I just think you have to be aware of that hurdle that because of what you're paying for this company, uh, they have to have 4% a year better growth than your average company out there just to get you in the same place in terms of market return. Do you get the impression that they're a public company kind of running it like a mom and pop shop? Um, I don't know. I think that they may have, for a company this size, they seem fairly professional. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they do seem to have a lot of things, whether it was the things that I said about the vice president things or the things about the investor presentations or the things about keeping all the former CEOs on the board and, and different things like that, um, the makeup of the board. There's a lot of things about it that makes it seem like a very small organization compared to what you're used to, investors are used to with big cap companies, but that it's run more like a bigger company. And the way that they talk about everything and the detail that they go into with it, it does feel very different than most micro caps that we look at, I would say. Mm-hmm. The detail of the um, 10K and stuff is extremely... Uh, oh, definitely. Yeah, it's just you're getting a lot of insight into it. And it seems like they're really interested in the investor relations aspect of it now, which I don't remember being so much the case when I looked at it a few years back. Well, more than a few years, five years or so. And you sometimes see that, I think, in micro caps. It's almost like they kind of, I don't want to say get over like the hill or whatever, but then they like change the, the way that they're going to communicate their company going forward. Right. And I think that's happening here. And I think I said that in the write up that I wouldn't be surprised if this kind of catches on as like a small cap compounder at some Mm -hmm. point. It's, it's still, I think technically a micro cap or something right now, but it'll be a small cap soon. And, um, it, when it's overwhelmingly the service business, I think people will be really interested, especially because of how predictable the earnings per share are going to be and sure. stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I could easily see this trading at a really high PE. It already does, but it's not. I don't see 
that even though it's a small company and everything, that it can't have a PE in the 30s or something. Um, so I liked it a lot, but honestly, I did say that although I liked it a lot, I gave it an initial interest rating of, I don't remember the exact amount, 70% or something. Mm-hmm. It was well above 50%. Um, I did, however, say that I wouldn't seriously look at it again to like actually buy it unless the stock dropped by like half. Oh, got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if this stock was trading at 13 or 14 times earnings, I would be very interested in buying it and holding it for the long term. But at 27 or 28 times earnings, it's just expensive enough that it's a high hurdle to clear. Got it. Yeah. Cool. Well, if you want to get access to Jeff's final thoughts on the company and the write-up, uh, go to focuscompounding.com. And if you do sign up, use the podcast promo code. Good job out of you today, Jeffrey. That was okay. good. If you guys enjoy these type of podcasts, um, I hope people that listen on the podcast side of things, hopefully you still kind of get something out of it. But, yeah, but if you, this one. yeah, yeah maybe not this one, but if you do enjoy us doing this, uh, let us know and we could do, I mean, look, we read 10 K's all day and mark them up just like this. So we could definitely go through it. And if it's going to you know, help individuals um, and they'd be interested in it, we'll definitely do more of these. But I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself on the number one value investing podcast in the world, soon to be the number one value investing YouTube channel in the world. My name is Andrew Kuhn. His name is Jeffrey Gannon. Check out all of our work. Uh, go to focuscompound.com. Follow me on Twitter at focuscompound. Um, and we will see you in the next podcast. Hey, this is Andrew Kuhn, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Jeff and I talk about actionable stock ideas, investing concepts, and the overall way that we think about investing at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Go to focuscompounding.com and enter in your email to get a free watch list from Jeff every other week. And be sure to check out all of our other work where Jeff writes about stocks at focuscompounding.com. I upload how-to investing videos on YouTube, and we both manage capital for investors at Focus Compounding Capital Management. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to follow along.